Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. As we move from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 16 to 20. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey fam, good to be home with you. Um, you know, it, it's it's wild how things work out. Um, when when my family uh, decided to move to Spokane, which is beautiful, by the way, it turns out it actually is beautiful. You should come visit. Uh, Pete and I were talking, and, uh, and I'm like, man, it wouldn't it be fun if we could continue this rhythm of life together, even from afar, and maybe, you know, from time to time, um, I could come back and, and talk about what I'm seeing um, in this world as it's breaking apart and what it's like to be moving with people who are trying to figure out what it means to put it back together. And, uh, and so we put November the 5th on the books, and, uh, and we're in a series here on the whole gospel, and uh, the invitation a couple months ago was to preach on love, and, uh, which I love to preach on love. Um, you know, I'm sitting in front of you right now with both, um, both the relief to be home and with a sense of shame for having been able to leave uh, a war zone. And um, some of you know that my work with Global Immersion takes me into war zones as a way of my life. I, whether battlefields or boardrooms, I'm moving into the space um, with tools to heal rather than to win. And um, I, I, I got evacuated three weeks ago, and we'll talk a lot more about that. I really do hope you come to the forum because I think a holistic, more pro-human understanding of this crisis is important for all of us. And, um, and we'll talk more about that there, but like I got evacuated three weeks ago and I, I landed in Boston and the sun is rising and everything is calm. And I'm going through customs. 
And the, the customs agent, he says, you know, well, what's your name? And how long were you in Israel? And, uh, and then he said, what's the nature of your work? And I said, well, I, I kind of live at the intersection of faith, leadership, and peacemaking. My, my work is peacemaking and conflict transformation. And he looks at me and he goes, then why did you leave? And he slides my passport back to me. And, um, and I think in the three weeks since that moment, I'm beginning to find my bearings in terms of um, why I left and why I'm here. And it's really about companioning American Christians in our liberation from a religion that dominates to a faith that restores. Because the world is dying because we have been socialized into a religion that dominates. We've been socialized into fidelity, into a religion that says violence is endorsed by God so long as it serves us. So why did I leave? I think I left to continue the work of companioning us and others in this perilous pilgrimage. So I want to offer some thoughts out of, um, about love then <laughs> in, uh, as it relates to that. And I, I want to share, you know, um, some stories about love, uh, what it looks like, what it felt like for me uh, a couple of weeks ago in the Middle East, because uh, I learned a thing or two about whole gospel kind of like full gospel love, like the kind of love that's not warm and affectionate, but like... It's the kind of love that's like full gospel, like, you know, boundary breaking, solidarity making, captive, liberating, creative, and costly kind of love. I learned something more about this in a war zone, and I'd love to share some of those stories um, with you. A month ago today, I was in Scotland, and um, I was speaking at a book festival where they had, invite in, they had invited other authors from around the world that, uh, that are writing on the themes of conflict and peacemaking. And so I got to spend time in Scotland, of all places, in like the greenest hills I've ever seen, inhabited by the bushiest sheep I've ever seen in my life, like the, the, the pinnacle of tranquility. Um, at least on the surface level, and I'm speaking at this gig, and I'm, I'm sharing stages with other peacemakers from around the planet, Northern Ireland, South Africa, war correspondents who, like me, are very compelled to enter into conflict and use whatever tools are, that are in our hands to, to bring an end to violence. And, um, and there's a custom at this particular book festival where every day ends with what's called books at bedtime, and, um, and it is exactly what you think it would be. It's, it's an author is invited to choose their favorite children's book. And then like hundreds of people climb into this tent in like the most comfortable clothes they have at nine o'clock at night. And everybody has like London fog tea in their homemade mugs. And, and, uh, and then an author reads a story. And um, the story that, that I read is The Old Turtle and the Broken Truth. Now, this is a story, uh, and, and let me share a little bit of it with you. It's a story about a beautiful truth that fell from the heavens, and as it entered into earth, it broke into pieces. And in the beginning of the story, the animals find a part of this truth, and they play with it, and they experiment, and they try it on, and they recognize it just doesn't work for them. 
So it gets kind of covered by debris and over time, humanity finds this partial truth and they're able to decipher the truth etched into it. The truth that they discovered said, I am loved. And the story says this, what they found they called the truth. The truth made the people feel good and proud and strong, but soon they also began to feel fear and even anger toward those who were not like themselves and did not share their truth. The other beings and other people of the lovely land seemed less and less important, and the language of the breezes was hardly ever heard anymore. Time passed and other people said, we must have this great truth for ourselves for with it comes happiness and power. And many battles were fought and the broken truth was won and lost, won and lost over and over again. But such was its power and beauty that no one ever doubted it. And when they were without it, they felt a great emptiness where their truth had been. The stones and trees suffered. The breezes and waters suffered and the animals and the earth and most of all, the people suffered. And then there's this little girl and this little girl had been shaped by a life of violence, ideologies and theologies that said it's okay to reach for power rather than the hand of one another. There's a little girl who dares to believe that there's a hopeful alternative to the nonsense of power and violence and domination and control and conquering. And so she takes a journey because she knows that a journey is the only thing that's going to transform her. She wants to find the old turtle. And so she navigates through this winding hero's journey. She's a true heroine being transformed by the journey. Eventually, she finds the old turtle and she says to her, where I live, the earth is sore and people are suffering. Battles are fought over and over again. People say it's always been this way and will never change. Can it change, old turtle? Can we make it change? And then old turtle begins to talk to her and shares with her this truth. They war because they have organized their lives around a partial truth. They've organized their lives around a partial truth. The old turtle says, it is because it is so close to a great whole truth that it has such beauty and that the people love it so. It is the lost portion of that broken truth that the people need if the world is to be made whole again. Little did I know that within days of reading that children's book, I would be living in the themes of that book. My work with Global Immersion, um, we're, a, we're a peacemaking training organization and we really do three things. We mediate conflict, we form conflict-competent leaders, teams, and cultures, and then we forge communities of everyday peacemakers like Antioch to join God in repairing the world. 
Part of the work that we've done over the last 12 years has involved building delegations of US-based folk and bringing them into the epicenter of conflict. Why? Because if you wanna learn about peace, conflict is the best classroom in the world because the best teachers on the planet are embedded in the trenches of those conflicts waging peace. Israel-Palestine is one of those spaces. So for 12 years, my learning curve has been very steep in understanding not only the geopolitical history of that particular conflict, but the ways in which theologies and ideologies, especially American evangelical theologies and ideologies, have been creating a catastrophe in the, in the pursuit of our dream. We'll talk a little bit more about that this afternoon. I haven't been in Israel and Palestine since a global pandemic. We were in the process of training a delegation of leaders from Westside here in Bend because they have a passion as a congregation to take a journey toward becoming an instrument of peace, not only in this area alongside Antioch, but within their denomination. So the play was, let's build a, a delegation of leaders from within this congregation and let's train together in the work of peacemaking. Let's become faith-based, Jesus-centering folk who know what it means to wear crosses rather than wield them. The hope was that we would build an engine room of reconciliation that would then guide the transformation of that congregation into an instrument of peace. And so I was going to be taking them with me into Israel-Palestine as a part of their training. Now, because I haven't been there since a global pandemic, I wanted to go just a couple days early because usually when I'm there, I've got people with me and I wanted to chill with my friends, Israelis and Palestinians, the peacemakers who are embedded in that crisis without folks with me. So I arrived on October the 5th and, uh, and I took a, a car to the West Bank, which is the Palestinian territory. You got to make it through some checkpoints in order to get there because my dear friend, brother and sister Milad and Minar, who they're, they're my brother and sister, they're married to one another. Um, I, I, wanted, I wanted to see them. I wanted to spend time with them. They live in a city called Bethany. And um, when we got there, I learned that October 6th was Minar's birthday. And so ever the hype guy, I'm like, what are we going to do? <laughs> and, uh, and she says, I'm so glad that you asked because I was going to actually ask you a favor. Her dream, since she was a little girl, was to ride her bike from Bethany, which is on the backside of the Mount of Olives, to Jericho. Now, the only way that you can ride your bike from Bethany, which is one of the most heavily occupied areas in the West Bank, to Jericho is through a number of checkpoints that are manned by ideologically entrenched young people with guns who are suffering their own kind of trauma. And you have to ride what's called the Jericho Road. Is that a familiar road to us as Jesus people? Right. Good Samaritan, there's a catastrophe that happens on the Jericho Road. You got to ride your bike on the Jericho Road to get from Bethany to Jericho. And then right now, that road takes you by the largest Israeli settlement in the West Bank. And she knows, and her husband, Milad, I'll show you a picture of him in a second. He's like an Armenian god. I mean, just the best looking human being I've ever met, <laughs> tall and strong and strapping. And for those reasons, he is humiliated by the Zionist occupation of his land. They take every chance to humiliate him and to shame him and physically manhandle him. And she knows that there's no way that she's going to live this dream riding her bike next to him. 
And that's what she says. And, and Milad understands he's the same way. She goes, I can't do this ride next to him, but with you. And then she goes like this, but with you. I think, I think we can make this ride. And so I'm like, absolutely, I'm in. And I look at Milad, I'm like, about how far is this bike ride? And, and uh, says someone who has never ridden a bike because he ha he's ridden a bike, he's never ridden a bike that distance because he can't. Not because he can't physically, he can't because of the structural violence that's in place that limits his ability to take a long bike ride. And so he says it'll probably be about a 30 minute ride. It's a 40 kilometer bike ride. But his, I, he didn't know how to give me an accurate timing because it's an impossibility for him to take that ride. So the next morning, Milad and I, we go and we find some mountain bikes. And uh, we, we grease up some chains and we put air in cracked tires and ride these bikes and this is him taking a picture of the two of us as we're making our way from a local gas station <laughs> to, uh, to Milad and Minar's home. And, um, and Minar and I begin this ride and this is a picture of the two of us is just at the beginnings of our ride. I'm wearing a nice shirt, it's a familiar one, right? It's the, it's the, it's the jersey of our family, friends, right here, right? Wore it on purpose, right? Like this is a moment of solidarity but this is also a declaration of the world that I'm dreaming of. And, uh, and we begin our ride, and y'all, it was 90 degrees. It was a 40-kilometer bike ride. We're on the clunkiest mountain bikes you've ever seen in your life, riding on the Jericho Road, and it was one of the most memorable, phenomenal experiences of my life. A couple things happened um, that I want to just lift up in my own expansion of the reach of my empathy and pro-human understanding of what's happening here. She's terrified of the settlers. But if I had a dollar for every settler that drove by honking their horns and cheering us on and offering us water, you know, I would have been able to buy breakfast that morning for us all. It's cool. But I also recognize that there was a familiarity there was a reason probably why they were encouraging us as we rode, as we rode together. Here's the moment. We're riding and I'm behind Minar. Here's, here's someone who is living a childhood dream that she has never been able to do. And I happen to be riding behind her when she, and I don't know, I don't know how often she rides a bike. But like we're, we're bombing down this, because on the Jericho Road, you go from like a thousand feet above sea level to like, like 500 feet below sea level, you know? Um, in my defense, there's a couple of nice climbs too, you know? But yeah, for the most part, you're just bombing. She's bombing. And I watch her release her handlebars and ride like this. free 
love that day looked like leveraging the privilege etched into my body to ensure that in the midst of a lifelong nightmare, one of her dreams could come true. For one brief moment, she could live free. That's whole gospel love and it changed me that day. It heightened my awareness of the privilege that I embody and taught me more about how to leverage it, all of it for the sake of another's liberation. That night, um, that was, it was her birthday dinner and in my home, uh, whoever's birthday it is gets to choose what the meal is and they didn't have any real big birthday traditions, so I'm like, what are we gonna make? And she said, uh, how about chicken Alfredo? <laughs> and so Milad and I, off we went again to try to find the ingredients for chicken Alfredo, and, uh, and we, we found it. And we, the two of us, made chicken Alfredo, but much to her chagrin, we forgot to pick up chicken. So it was just... <laughs> And she let us know how ridiculous it is to eat chicken Alfredo without chicken. And that evening, we're, we're, um, we're sitting out. This is, this is their backyard, and um, we're enjoying Alfredo. And um, let me say a, thing, a few things about Bethany. Bethany is a place of restoration and resurrection. Bethany is the place where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. This is the place where Jesus would show up and let his hair down and engage in just some unrushed friend time, feet up with some of his best friends. This is a place that's less than an hour's walk from the old city of Jerusalem. But because of structural violence and an occupation, it takes hours of driving to move through multiple checkpoints to get into Jerusalem if you have a permit to get in, literally on the backside of the Mount of Olives. So when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on what we would call Palm Sunday, he's been hanging in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, chilling out, probably leaning heavily onto them because he has a sense of what's about to happen Right? And then he would have climbed up the backside of the Mount of Olives, overseen the temple and the city, and, and then lamented that Jerusalem did not know the things that made for peace. Where, we, where we're having birthday dinner and what you're looking at right now is what we could see, and it's literally overlooking Lazarus' tomb because it's also a place of resurrection. Jesus raised his bro from the dead right there, you know? And as we're sitting there enjoying dinner, violence began to crescendo. Shouts and blasts and gas and gunfire and burning tires. And at first, Milad and Menar were like, welcome to Friday night in Bethany. And every time, ah, oh man, every time another explosion would happen, Menar would say, ah, they celebrate my birthday. Which is a, that's trauma to make light of explosions that are probably altering someone else's reality. The only, to o the only way you can deal with it is with a little bit of humor. And then it went from this is Friday night in, in Bethany to this is different, something is happening. 
We went inside. The next morning was October 7th and I awoke to missiles exploding in the sky above us and news that Hamas insurgents had broken through the walls that enclosed Gaza Strip and were murdering Israeli civilians. This is different. Something is happening. My friend Milad urged me to stay. Now, as a general rule, when I'm in war zones, I take my cues from the people who are on the ground. Somehow, somebody captured this image. I think it was Menar, and this is Milad and I talking about what are we going to do about this? Not only in terms of like, do I stay, do I leave, but how do we leverage all of our resources right now in a way that can either awaken people's understanding to what's going on or can make sure that you as an organization remain uh, resourced to be able to wage peace in the trenches of what will probably be a really devastating war. So this is, this is the conversation that we're having here. He's urging me to stay. He knew it would be dangerous to get from Bethany and to the checkpoints. He knew that everybody manning the checkpoints would be heavily triggered. This is an attack on the psyche of the Jewish soul. Everybody's going to be triggered. It's going to be dangerous to move through, and it will probably be really dangerous to be in Jerusalem. But he also knew that I had a delegation of U.S. Americans landing into what was now a war zone. He knew that my work is to guide American Christians in a journey of liberation that carries significant implications, not only for his safety, but for his future. He knew I had to get to Jerusalem. So he calls one of his best friends and he gives him direct orders that you will do whatever it takes to get my friend out of the West Bank and into Jerusalem and If it gets dangerous, you are to bring him right back here, no questions asked. Love that day looked like their concern for my well-being while their own was being compromised. Love looked like an offer of unprecedented hospitality for as long as it was needed. Love looked like utilizing their network of relationships to position me where the work was most urgent. And it changed me that day. Love deepened our costly solidarity and emboldened me to keep taking huge risks to challenge the truthless Christianity that had made this violence inevitable. I got to Jerusalem and six of 10 were able to actually land on the ground. Uh, Together, we were undone by the scale of terror inflicted on Israelis by Hamas insurgents, and we held our breath in anticipation of the terror that Israeli power brokers would mobilize upon Gazans. And then we were stunned by its scale. My focus in that time was divided in six different directions. First, I had to pastor a small community of resilient leaders that were trying to find their heads and their hearts in an ever-changing environment. Second, I was there to train peacemakers, U.S. American peacemakers from within the context of a crisis. The training environment had shifted, but I was training them 
nonetheless to be peacemakers who know what it means to grow a more holistic, pro-human understanding of what was unfolding. Third, I had to provide some triage therapy for this conflict was triggering and dislodging and disorienting. Fourth, I had to build plans to evacuate my people out of the country. Fifth, I had to care for and collaborate with my Israeli and Palestinian partners, now peacemakers embedded within the trenches of this war. And sixth, I had an opportunity to offer some commentary to Western Christians about what it was that we were witnessing. It's crazy, y'all. Like, we would build a contingency for evacuation, and within 30 minutes, it would fall apart. So we had to build another contingency with fall apart, another, 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 and fall apart, fall apart, fall apart, all the while holding the unbelievable reality that because of our privilege and a blue passport, chances were very good we would get out of the country, while millions do not have that option. It's, it's hard to hold that but we worked hard to hold both of those realities at the same time. Finally, we built a contingency plan that held. We had tickets. We were going to evacuate my people through Jordan. And, um, and once tickets were in hand, I invited a, a Jerusalem-based Jewish peacemaker to sit with us. He's a historian and theologian. He joined us at, at the hotel that we were staring at, or staying at, and, and um, I just invited him to share his experience of October 7th and what this moment unlocked in the soul and the psyche of the Jewish people. He reminded us that the Jewish people for millennia have been threatened with elimination, erasure. And in some moments in time, it's almost been successful. Helped us understand that what happened on the 7th awakened a societal level PTSD at a DNA level inside of the Jewish community, our Jewish kin. And with that understanding, empathy grew. And we held him in his despair and grief, and then he held us as we asked questions imperfectly. And then he taught us the Jewish concept of machloket. Really fun word to say right here. Machloket. Machloket, the root of that term means part or particle. That root is also used in the words divide and share, whereas shalom, that means whole, wholeness. Machloket means righteous disagreement or constructive disagreement. It means that I, my experience and my perspective is as valid as your experience and your perspective. Makloka doesn't mean that we dominate one another and try to prove the superiority of our perspective and opinion, but rather we come to a table acknowledging that I am never fully right and always partially wrong. That my perspective is not 2020 vision. That the experiences and perspectives of my others, irritants, and enemies are valid, even necessary. And our work, again, is not to dominate one another, but to listen and dialogue and disagree in the direction of a better shared understanding. He said, to win is to break with the tradition. And then he and I had a fishbowl conversation with my people listening in about how to win, to dominate, to control, to conquer is to break with the essence of our traditions. 
as we're having that conversation, the air sirens, the air raid sirens begin to blare. Missiles and rockets are blowing up in, on top of, in the air above us again. He looks at me with a level of fear and he said, Is, does this hotel have a bomb shelter? We don't. We have a stairwell. So we all, we're on the rooftop at this point. We all run to the stairwell and as we're running, he, he reaches and he grabs my hand and he says, Jer, this is what happens when Machlokit breaks down. We make our way to the, to the, the very base of the stairwell and I found myself with Israelis and Palestinians and internationals and friends in that moment, we experienced our shared humanity. We protected one another's dignity. We discovered our interdependence. And so love that day looked like an invitation. It looked like proximity to someone who was in pain and meeting him in his despair. It looked like holding space for imperfect curiosity. Love looked like strangers reaching for the hands of one another while the sounds of power made inevitable by people who reach for power is, is like the soundtrack of the moment. And here's what it did for me. Here's how that full gospel kind of love changed me in that moment. It caused me to fully break agreement with any way of organizing myself around a partial truth. So let's return to the old turtle. The old turtle said, quote, it's the lost portion of that broken truth that the people need if the world is to be made whole again. But where is the missing piece, asked the little girl. Can we put the truth back together again? And after a while, the old turtle spoke again. The broken truth and life itself will be mended only when one person meets another, someone from a different place or a different face or different ways and sees and hears herself. Only then will the people know that every person, every being is important and that the world was made for each of us. For a long time then, the two friends were quiet, high on their hill in the very center of the world. And in her heart, the little girl thought she could see other people in other beautiful lands, people different from her own, but still somehow the people. Now, little one, it's time for you to go, to return to your people and tell them what you have seen and learned and help them mend their broken truth. Take this with you, said old turtle, as she placed something in the little girl's hand. I've saved it for a very long time for someone just like you. The little girl looked at what old turtle had given her it was a kind of stone, a mysterious, beautiful stone. It was lovely to touch, and it made her feel good to hold it. She squeezed it tightly, then tucked it away for her journey. Thank you, old turtle, she said, and hugged her friend's great leathery neck. And then she started home. Once more, she traveled through the forest of finding out, crossed the river of wondering why, and the mountains of imagining. Crow led the way, and again, when the little girl grew tired, all her animal friends helped. 
She sometimes touched the stone old turtle had given her to renew her strength, and it took a long time, yet almost no time at all. And she was home. But it had been a very long journey, and those who take great journeys of the heart are changed. The people did not recognize her, and when she spoke, they did not understand She told them of her journey, but the people could not follow her words. She spoke of a world made of small and gentle truths, of all the people being one people, but they could not catch her meaning. She explained about the broken truth and the need to make it whole, but the people did not believe her and could not understand. Finally, Crow seeing all that had happened, flew to the place high above the village where the great truth was kept, in a place where all could see it. He cawed and cawed in his loudest voice, and suddenly the little girl knew what to do. She climbed to the high place herself. She took old Turtle's stone from her pocket and carefully added the missing piece to the old broken one. The fit was perfect. The people looked and looked and looked. Some frowned, some smiled, some even laughed, and some cried, and then they began to understand. Friends from within a war zone, love changed me. It softened my certainty. It expanded the reach of my empathy and it reinforced the truth that I am loved and so are they. That is a full gospel kind of boundary breaking, solidarity making, captives liberating, creative kind of costly love and It's the love that's changing me. It's the love that's transforming us. And if we live like we believe that this is true, it is the only power that's going to remake our world.